Good afternoon. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This show was pre-recorded on April 12th. Send your comments to news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. This is the fourth program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We feature topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about libraries, defenders of democracy. We'll talk about libraries and democracy, privacy protection, intellectual freedom, and censorship, informed citizenry, supporting elections, preserving the historical record, and the particular challenges and threats that libraries are experiencing right now from book banning, book banning to funding shortages, so much more. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum today. Let me introduce our guests. Rich Boulay is the director of the Blue Hill Public Library. Welcome, Rich. Thanks for having me. Alexandra Hinricks. Do you say Alex or Alexandra? Either one is fine. Okay. Let me go up with Alex. Alexandra Hendricks is a children's author and middle school librarian at Leonard Middle School in Old Town. Welcome, Alex. Thank you. Allison Macrina. 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 You got it right the first time. Okay. Is, is the founder and director of the Library Freedom Project, an organization that works with librarians who are dedicated to library values of privacy, intellectual freedom, social responsibility, and the public good. So happy to have you, Allison. Thanks for having me. And then Jamie Ritter is our own main state librarian. Thank you for joining us, Jamie. Welcome to be here. Thank you. So last week was National Library Week, celebrated since 1958. National Library Week is dedicated to marking these great civic institutions, people as diverse as Andrew Carnegie, Franklin Roosevelt, Bill Moyers, Doris Lessing, Dan Rather, have talked about public libraries as essential to democracy. At a time when mis, dis, and malinformation are proliferating, when book banning is on the rise and really at an historical level, when funding for libraries is under threat, we want to talk today about why, Larry, why libraries are an essential democratic institution. So let me put it to you first, Jamie. Why do these famous people, you know, Carnegie, Roosevelt, Moyers, Leslie, why do they talk about libraries as essential democratic institutions? Well, I think, you know, when you look at the public library experiment in particular that Carnegie helped helped to shape, really, we're 100 years into to this effort um, where we saw private libraries um, becoming more open to the people that they serve and Frankly, I think at the end of the day, I I feel these people acknowledge that libraries really are 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 there to um, welcome any and all, and the the collections reflect the ability for people to really broaden their um, their view of the world and their view of their own community and to assist them as they pursue happiness. And um, I go on and on and it, and it can get fluffy and, and also sort of uh, <laughs> um, very precise, but 
but that's what libraries are are there to do. And um, I think that they've really um, inspired um, our society for being places that people can find enlightenment. I talk about like, the First Amendment aspect of this, like freedom of thought, freedom of conscience, freedom from censorship. Allison, why don't you weigh in on that a little bit? I'm so glad you asked me that because, you know, uh, when Jamie was talking, I agree all the fluffy stuff. I actually would love to hear all the fluffiness and positivity about libraries. But with regard to the First Amendment, I think it's especially important libraries as centers of, of democracy when we're in an era where, you know, the First Amendment obviously protects individuals um, ability, right to free expression, free speech, but it also now protects corporate speech. And I think that that is really one of the reasons why libraries become even more essential for democracy, because when we're in an era where money is treated the same, you know, gives is given the same free speech treatment that, you know, you or I, who presumably don't have as much money as corporations um, democracy really only works if everyone can participate on some equal footing. We don't really have that with our current free speech environment. So to me, libraries are a way of, you know, combating, um, br- taking back some of that people power. So le- having a place that is free, um, that is predicated on um, the, you know, the original kind of sentiment of free speech values, which are about people who are minoritized, people who are, present some ch- possible challenge to the status quo, people who have dissident views, especially in an era where corporations have the same free speech rights, and also where there are powerful reactionary anti-democratic forces that are working against um, the, you know, the very values that libraries believe in. I think it's that much more important given that we're in that kind of environment right now. Rich, how do you see that First Amendment angle playing out? You're you're running a public library there. How does that play out where you live? Um, plays out in a daily way, in a basically by uh, seeing what people what what information people want to access and uh, making sure they have it. Not sort of putting my own sort of approval or endorsement on the ideas that are present in the library. Um, making sure that. The library is responsive to community needs and requests. That isn't just for reading material, but it's really for all the ways that we can stretch the library to kind of respond to the community. Um, I mean, Blue Hill is a fairly wealthy community, but um, the library is there to serve everybody, right? Do you see that in your clientele? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I actually would dispute that Blue Hill is a wealthy community. Blue Hill has some wealth in it, but it has a lot of poverty, too. Uh, It's all over the map. And um, we're fortunate to have a lot of support in our community for our library. But the library is there for everybody, regardless of your circumstance, regardless of what you believe, regardless of it doesn't even matter where you live. If you drove across the state and came to the Blue Hill Public Library and asked for a library card, we would give you one. So happy to have everybody. Now, Alex, you're in a public school environment. How does this, you know, cross demographic intellectual freedom play itself out in a school setting? It is a little bit different here. Um, in, in some ways, it's very much the same, and in some ways, it's different. So, in a school, there's still that fundamental value of presenting 
a variety of ideas of having that freedom of ideas and access as much as possible. Um, what's a little bit different is that in a school setting, depending on like catalog settings or something, the a, a child's library record would technically be an educational record. And so um, that, you know, there would be access to that, for example, but for until they're 18. Um, so who could see what books they checked out? Their teachers, their parents? Is their that what parents. you're saying? Yeah, their okay. parents. Yeah. Um, it, you know, if they requested. But what's interesting, you know, there have been some conversations happening with bigger companies right now, like Follett, who just announced that they won't be doing this, but there was, there were attempts to get Follett, who is one of the companies that distributes books, but also operates Destiny, which is a library catalog. It's not actually the one that um, my district uses, but many schools do, to have notifications go out to families every single time a child checked out a book. Oh, baby. Yeah. um, They, they have responded to the libraries, you know, many librarians spoke out um, against that. And they said they're not moving forward that with that. But we're seeing that in other little ways too. Um, another example, and this is a little bit different, but um, I'm we're in our district in conversation with Overdrive, who we use for audiobooks and ebooks. And they are switching over completely to Sora, which is their more student geared app, um, which is totally fine. But they're taking away what we currently have is a public, um, the OPAC, the public facing catalog, like the web page that anyone can see. So anyone, regardless of their status at the school, could see our holdings um, in OverDrive. And one of the things they said is, well, we know with the rise in challenges, et cetera, um, that it might be good to have a little more privacy around that. And we actually, yeah, I mean, really are fighting this. <laughs> we said, no, that's, that's not how it works. We want that transparency. Um, we want that ability from anyone in our community or anywhere, you know, maybe someone's considering moving here or whatever to be able to see our holdings um, but without having to go through an extra step of signing in, et cetera. So, you know, there are, those are just a couple very specific examples of conversations happening in reaction to um, the the climate right now and the rise in challenges. And we, we've experienced that as well this year, a, a challenge year. So I, I want to get to these challenges in like next, but before we do yeah. that, I want to circle back on something you said where public school libraries are different because um, the parents can see what the kids checked out where rich in a public library you would protect that information right well not only that but it's state law state law prevents us from releasing that information to any third party without a court order so even when it's a very innocent request you know like um hey did my wife check out this book or whatever just because i want to make sure i'm not getting it for her again um unfortunately we can't answer that question 
there was something about the Patriot Act, wasn't there, Jamie, about privacy protections in libraries and the Patriot Act? Yeah, there was, you know, many years ago when that was passed, there was, you know, and it's now referred to as the, the library provision, but it was really allowing um, uh, the FBI or other federal law enforcement under the guise of, of combating terrorism to uh, request the library record without a warrant. Um, and that was successfully uh, defeated. Thank goodness. So talk about defenders of democracy. You know, you've gone to the mat for these privacy protections in the public library setting, right? We ha- we have, and, and they're so they're so critical for all the reasons my colleagues have, have spoken about on, you know, on this call today. But when you think about um, freedom of speech and participating in your democracy, part of the, the, the inherent um, trust that's built is the fact that I can do this on my own without anyone knowing it's no one else's business in terms of when you get into intellectual freedom and freedom of thought and, right to read, those privacy protections really underscore the importance of of that. The role of the library has really changed in the digital age, hasn't it? How have libraries had to adapt to being online? Like, for example, a lot of people use libraries, don't they, for internet access if they don't have good Wi-Fi at home. Do libraries put constraints on what they can look at on the internet? Are there federal regulations that require limits or rich go ahead because that's a big general question well we're actually required to comply with the children's internet protection act uh, that's actually a federal case that we fought and we meaning the library community and lost in was it 2003 or four um, and uh, for many years main libraries complied with the children's internet protection act um, by essentially not accepting a portion of that funding but it was determined ultimately that uh, that wasn't really um, working, uh, that wasn't really compliant. And so at this point, we're obligated, if we accept any federal funds, and most of us do, uh, at least indirectly, for our internet access, uh, we're all required to employ content filters in our public access computers. That is, technological measures that are intended to prevent people from accessing certain types of material. So child pornography, basically. Well, child pornography is a different thing. That's actually clearly illegal speech. That's, okay. that's different. Okay. But pornography is not illegal speech. And that's a different matter. It's, it's so um, it would be illegal for a public library to be involved with the provision of illegal speech. That's mm-hmm, just kind mm-hmm. of obvious. But um, unfortunately, uh, library, co- library content filters um, often cast a wider net than they intend to because they're a somewhat imprecise tool, effectively searching through text to determine what images are, if that makes sense. So um, Allison may have some more comments on this, but um, our, meaning the library community's objection to that over time has has been that um, they overblock inevitably and you know, you might be just searching for something that's entirely uh, unobjectionable to most anybody, but it gets wrapped up in that in that filter. 
Hold your thought, Allison. I'm coming right back to you after a little station break. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is Libraries, Defenders of Democracy. Our guests this afternoon are Alexandra Henricks, children's author and middle school librarian at the Leonard Middle School in Old Town, Allison McCrina, founder and director of the Library Freedom Project, Jamie Ritter, Maine State Librarian, and Rich Boulay, director of the Blue Hill Public Library. We were talking about whether libraries, because libraries have all gone digital now, do libraries put constraints on what people can do on the internet, which was explaining and Allison want to make a comment. So go ahead, Allison. Yeah, Rich is totally right about the overbroad nature of these content filters. It's not only that they're imprecise tools that use a lot of automation to make decisions about what people are doing, but also, you know, there's no standardization in terms of like, which content filter they're private companies you know that that have to be employed on the library computers and i was actually literally just this morning talking to a librarian in texas whose content filter blocks the bbc blocks planned parenthood but doesn't block the epic times which is a far right wing um a news outlet that has repeatedly published misinformation and disinformation repeatedly pushed the you know, the the Trump line about the stolen election. So there's definitely like some political and ideological motivations for these filters too. Another issue is that it's not simply a free speech issue. It's also a privacy issue because the filters are in, in order to block people from accessing content, it's gotta it's gotta watch what they're doing and it logs it. Um, and then when you consider that a lot of this federal funding benefits um poor communities the most because the federal funding is for broadband access. And in order to get the federal funding, you have to content filter. So we're talking about it's an equity issue as well. And even though it's supposed to be like, oh, protect the children, the filters go on all the computers. And what is expected of us is that our adult patrons will just ask for them to be removed. And we know that they don't do that. You know, we're not, they're, they're not going to be like, oh, the thing I was trying to look at is blocked by the library's content filter, they'll just, you know, move on. And so, you know, this really, I think, gets at, Rich was talking about us fighting this um, law. Jamie was talking about our, our fight against the Patriot Act. I think repeatedly, when these rights have been on the line, librarians have really pushed back against, you know, overbroad government intrusion. And the thing about us fighting the Patriot Act, too, for folks who are around in that time, who remember that that was an environment where dissent was not acceptable. And we caught a lot of heat for our public position against the Patriot Act. Um, You know, even like former Attorney General John Ashcroft was like, oh, the librarians are just being hysterical or whatever. And so we've gone to bat for these beliefs. That's right. Rich is another (laughs) hysterical librarian for freedom. Um, We made T-shirts and buttons and all that. Um, that, you know, we're talk about our role as, you know, democracy defenders when when push comes to shove, we really, really will show up for these rights. So are these content blockers like commercial? Is there like one that everybody uses or do each library buy their own or how does that work? They mostly buy their own. Um, sometimes it will. Sometimes it's a. Um, at the um, like browser level. So it's, it's, it's blocking a predetermined list of sites. Um, And 
Sometimes that's pretty opaque too. You can't figure out until you get to the block. And then sometimes it's at the level of a firewall, which is also kind of a political thing because that might be put in place by the town. So in more conservative places, they're, they're, they're preventing the library from even making that decision. Wow. I want to talk about how libraries are funded and which are publicly funded, which are foundation funded and how political that gets that's on our list. But let me work my way around to it a little bit. So uh, as libraries have moved more and more online, are those resources like enhancing brick and mortar libraries or competing with them? Like have libraries, maybe you can answer this, Jamie, have libraries generally still been pretty busy? Lots of people go there, even in the digital age? Well, you'd expect me to say yes to that. <laughs> I know we. Um, I know that we. Um, we were we were seeing some flatlining of tr- of some trends um, pre pre COVID, and and COVID really disrupted that. Um, I would like to believe that just our, our need is um, our, our need for human interaction um, and will will reemerge and and I think we'll see libraries come back um, quite quite strong but but to answer your question more specifically yes they've always um, continued to be used even though we see some ebbs in circulation over digital you know print circulation over digital or or in-person visits but but the thing that I always keep in mind and it's so true and it, I think it will be become even more evident and and uh, much stronger as we as we come through the pandemic. It's it's the idea of a third place. Libraries is third place. So people have home, they have work or school, and then research and time and again we find people saying the library. That's the that's my third place, and it's such a powerful um, position, frankly, because of all that happens in a library beyond just looking for a book and checking something out. So, um, no, I think the bricks and mortar operation continues to be strong and it's part of our value proposition um, and part of, part of our DNA. A place to go. Absolutely. You know, we were seeing, you know, this time in American history is a time when lots of public institutions are, losing trust, losing funding, you know, public institutions are under threat in lots of different ways. How have those institutional threats um, arrived at, uh, and hit started to hit libraries? Jamie, I'll ask you that again. Sure. Um, and I, and I think, you know, Rich and Alexandra will have, have input too, just but both being in public funded institutions. Um, it, it hits libraries the the same the same way that it hits any sort of publicly funded service that isn't quite determined to be essential. And if you ask, you know, people on the street, is a library essential? Well, of course they'll say yes. But when they go up against budgets for security or fire and police and these sorts of things, it's it's always one of the first areas to to go. Um, so I think that that struggle continues. However, I will say that nationally, um, and certainly it's being felt locally, because of the role libraries have played 
through the pandemic, um, so much more awareness has been pin brought to light, frankly, and um, allow libraries to showcase just how valuable they are in continuing to connect people in a time when isolation, you know, has been at its highest. And I hope that that translates into more stable budget positions as, as we move forward. You know, the Blue Hill Public Library has got its own foundation, right? You're not funded by the city of Blue Hill or the town of Blue Hill, are you, Rich? We are. We get 15% of our operating funds from taxpayers in Blue Hill, Sedgwick, and Surrey, and Penobscot. Right. I, Jamie, do you know how many public libraries are completely funded municipally, or maybe not, none are, but, you know, we just had that news reporting about the Ellsworth Public Library losing their director over a budget um, struggle. Is that common right now? It's uncommon. I mean, it ha- when situations like that happen, they happen in that manner, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but it's not it's not as, as as common as we think. But it but it's a sad commentary, <laughs> frankly, on on the value that's being placed. I'll um, I am just pulling up some data. I'm sorry that it's not t- top of sheet here, but I'll answer your question more specifically about percentages in in Maine. But we have a healthy split, and there's really no one that's fully, fully municipally, you know, municipal funding simply because they're receiving services that are paid for or some other type of grant funding. But but we can we can sh- shed some light on that for you in a, in a moment. Well, I want to. Oh, oh, go if, ahead. If I may, uh, yeah. a majority of main public libraries are organized as nonprofit organizations. That's that's the that's the norm in Maine. I mean. There are an awful lot of municipal entities that that are public libraries, but the majority are nonprofits. And I was wondering, Allison, whether you know whether the extent to which a library depends on municipal funding, like you were saying, may deter. There may be political motivations behind what filter they use. I, I've felt like sometimes. Um, municipal funding in conservative towns constrains how political they can be or how much election information they're willing to feature. I mean, what what's the political slant if that library gets a lot of funding from a municipality? I feel like, you know, it kind of almost irrespective of where the library gets their funding from, that libraries are deeply politicized um, just for the very nature of what we do and who we serve and who, what our values are. But it is absolutely true that those libraries that rely on municipal funding and in a lot of parts of the country, um, they end up as like, um, you know, bond levies and that sort of thing. So people will vote on them. And there is occasionally organized opposition to these, um, you know, funding uh, renewals or, or increases that hinge on, um, you know, the content that the library is offering. So, you know, something that has come up a lot in the last few years, um, you know, before even the book banning became, you know, the, the surge in, in book bans and challenges that we're seeing now, Lots of libraries started offering drag queen story times. You may have heard of these. They're exactly what they sound like, right? Drag queens come and read to the kids. It's really fun. The kids love it. Parents love it. It's just like fun and silly thing. But there are a lot of people who are opposed to this and they might not even necessarily live in the communities that are served by the library, 
but they are, you know, vocal opponents and it can definitely impact the library's ability to seek funding. And so, yeah, for sure, there's all kinds of censorship and self-censorship that comes from this and a lot of risk aversion, um, you know, a lot of libraries that also think that our, you know, obligations to the First Amendment mean that we can't take a position on anything, and that's not actually true. Um, but yeah, it's 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 highly politicized, and it certainly impacts the way that we choose what services or content to offer. Which does kind of bring us around to the book banning. Like this has been a thing for the last what year, 12, 18 months. I think I read a record number of book banning incidents, like in the last fifty years or something like that. Did I get that right? Jamie, what are you seeing statewide in terms of this kind of activity? Yeah, we, um, a couple of years ago, there were, there were a number of um, legislative initiatives and some, some challenges really around um, curriculum for teachers and some other sorts of, uh, other sorts of material challenges that we saw. I'm not, I'm not seeing in Maine yet the, um, the, the level of of challenges that that some other states are, are seeing but it's certainly here front and front and center and um, it's a it exists both with uh, challenges that are that are being brought like Allison said from those not even associated with that aren't even in Maine um, as well as uh, as well as challenges here in Maine and and sometimes from from people even within the industry. We heard about the Matinicus Library going about buying every single book that had been banned elsewhere, which was kind of one way to approach it. But, you know, Alex, you actually had an incident at your library, right? Um, yes, we've had quite an incident. I, and if it's okay, I'd also just like to add a couple of comments. Um, just piggybacking off of things that were said earlier. So one thing is that our circulation, I've heard this from school librarians in general, informally, I should say, I haven't read a report yet, but our circulation is up. And not just since 2020, since before the pandemic, um, since 2019 and before. So I think there's definitely been a surge in kids eager to get their hands on actual (laughs) books. Um, And then the other thing I just wanted to mention is that the big issue with funding in school libraries is that and I'm lucky to work in a district that really does value libraries and um, and still provides that funding. But a lot of districts, what what we're seeing is a drop off in the n- number of either a librarian per school mm-hmm. that not all schools have librarians, um, and or so if there is library staff that aren't degreed librarians, so maybe an ed tech is working in the library, a lack of um, assistance in giving them the training they need to to help become that degreed librarian. So I just wanted to mention that. So Um, let me just take a quick station break, and then I want you to tell your story about about the (laughs) book banning. So you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Allison McCrina, founder and director of the Library Freedom Project, Jamie Ritter, Maine State Librarian, Rich Boulay, director of the Blue Hill Public Library, and Alexandra Hitchin Henricks, 
Alexandra Henrich's children's author and middle school librarian at Leonard Middle School in Old Town. And that middle school actually did have a book challenge. And I want Alex to talk about that next. Go ahead, Alex. Hi. So we have had a book challenge this year and we had an informal uh, challenge against two books last year too. And I should say that when I took this job, because I joined um, my district in 2020, September, 2020, quite the time to join. And one of the questions I asked um, after accepting the job was, you know, Hey, out of curiosity, do you receive a lot of book challenges? And there hadn't been a single one in the working memory of the school, which extends back about 30 years, a little more, I think. Um, I received my first complaint on day eight. <laughs> and I, I was able to diffuse the first two, which were from a single parent about two books and two different books in the library. Um, but this year, that was not the case. So this year what happened, there was a challenge against the book Milk and Honey by Rupi Carr, which is um, a book of poetry, um, almost a memoir in verse about the author's survival of sexual assault and moving on to healthier relationships and healing from her experiences. And um, the parent who with whom the challenge originated took it straight to social media and followed what I believe is a national trend of using the open our school district Facebook page that began with the pandemic where um, a lot of parents had come together to try and keep school districts open during the pandemic they didn't want them shut down and posted multiple images of poems from the book. Some of the poems they posted actually weren't even in the book. So it was immediately evident that they hadn't actually read it and had found these images elsewhere. Um, they were by the poet, but it wasn't, some weren't even in a book we had in the library. Um, and then there was quite the uproar within a few hours, I had received a call threatening me from a different parent, and we had to um, involve the police that way. And then after that, um, there was this, we went through the formal process of appointing the committee to review the book um, that involved, a, I mean, follows district policy, which is in line with state policy of following, um, choosing a librarian, and it wasn't me, it was a different librarian, a community member, a teacher, um, and a, an administra administrator to re review the book and make a decision. And they decided it warranted remaining in our library and in our school. Um, it went, when, the family found that out, they called Homeland Security <laughs> and reported us to Homeland Security. Uh, Homeland <laughs> Security immediately turned it over to our local police. Um, and then there were other families that called the Department of Education. Um, there were other threats received <laughs> to... Wow. And I laugh out of nervousness. I'm just like a nervous laughter. Right. It was ridiculous. It was, we were not laughing at the time. Um, 
these are really emotional when they happen. It's really yeah. hard to, to, to endure this kind of berating. It, it was, it was very emotional. It was very, I lost a lot of sleep over it. Um, I will say though, that the most emotional part in the end for me, and I think for many of us here was actually the day that the, so it went on to being appealed to the school committee. So the decision went to the school committee of whether it would stay in our school or not. And every person who spoke, spoke in favor of the book, there were parents and students and teachers and I had just geared myself up for the worst because that was kind of felt like what I'd been experiencing and everybody was so supportive at the at the committee meeting. In fact, no one ended up speaking out against the book. I will say the, the you know, the family with whom the challenge originated was not present and I think a lot of the people in that Facebook group were not present. Um but it was very moving to hear the amount of support. Um, I said after I said it almost was enough to make me glad I went through. <laughs> that, that's, that, no, that's very heartening because people showed up for you. That's great. Jamie, you've got your comment there. Go ahead. Yeah. And I, I think that that's, you know, the beauty of what we do because, and I don't, I don't want to assume um but I, I have to think that people are coming forward to express their support because they believe that the library should be the place to hold these materials and to allow people access to them. Um, many of them may not have even have read the book and don't right. know necessarily what they're supporting other than the fact that the idea that people should have access is, is the most important thing. And that, that's really the beauty of that. That's, it worked out well, Alexandra. I'm right. sorry. You had to go through that. Tough. Have you experienced anything like that at your library, Rich? Yeah. In uh, November and December, we had a pretty heated uh, challenge to a book in our, on our shelves. Uh, the book in question is a fairly conservative take on transgendered youth. Um, the Blue Hill Library has around 60 titles on its shelves, which are in that ballpark, and, and mostly, vast majority, were trans-affirmative titles, and I felt like we had a readership in our community for another take, and um, like uh, in Alex, Alex's community, it, it was largely a social media phenomenon, uh, and, um, you know, a lot of the things that we hear coming from ALA are good and important, but we're always hearing about the quote unquote good books that are being challenged. But sometimes as librarians, we're put in a position to defend access to ideas that we might personally vehemently disagree with. But my, my personal opinion on that is that if you're not willing to defend access to ideas that you disagree with, you might as well not be defending access to any ideas. You know, I'm so glad you mentioned that. I'm going to do one more station break, and then I want to ask you to reflect, all of you to reflect on the professional and ethical standards that librarians um, adhere to in 
developing their collections. So just hold that thought and we'll come right back. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Rich Boulay, director at the Blue Hill Public Library, Alexandra Henricks, children's author and middle school librarian at Leonard Middle School in Old Town, Allison Macrina, founder and director of the Library Freedom Project, and Jamie Ritter, state Main State Librarian. Our topic today is Libraries, Defenders of Democracy. This show was pre-recorded. You can send your comments or questions to news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. So talking about the professional and ethical standards and how hard it is for libraries to design their collections. Uh, let's start with you, Jamie. Like, what are the overarching principles that a library should adopt when they think about how to include a diverse range of voices in their collection? Yeah, I think that um, certainly a collection needs to be representative of, of their community. And librarians also, though, have um, a responsibility to to build a collection that um, goes beyond the walls of the, of the community. And um, I think as libraries begin to collect materials, um, they need to be cognizant of, of you know, qu- quality of, of materials. And at the same time, um, they need to recognize that um, to the extent their budgets allow, which is always important, that the collection should, um, again, and I'm going to come back full circle, should be reflective of of the community that they're serving, and I think those principles can help guide. There are not there are other principles as well for collection development, but but those those to me are are some of the most important. I mean, libraries can't get every book, Allison. Right? Nobody nobody can. So when you have to make those choices. I mean, are libraries supposed to be totally neutral or how how do librarians go about thinking about this? So we have a very specific obligation to the First Amendment that includes this concept of viewpoint neutrality, which means we're not supposed to favor one viewpoint over another. What this has been taken to mean in in the library world is that neutrality means we don't take positions on anything. We don't demonstrate our own values. We can't have like a Black Lives Matter display or something. And that's not true. Also, personally, I I care very much about the First Amendment. I care about free speech. And I think that aspect of what we do is really important. I don't really think that viewpoint neutrality exists. I think that the idea that we somehow can, like we can't show all views at all times. And I don't know that that would even necessarily be a good thing. I think about the other core values of librarianship. So there's a whole list. ALA came up with it in the 1930s and it includes intellectual freedom and includes privacy, but it also includes social responsibility. And I think about that and, you know, what Jamie said about um, the quality of materials, social responsibility. Another value is the public good. Now these are very nuanced concepts, right? They're not scientific. They are an art and we're interpreting them all the time. But I think that, you know, I try to think about them deeply when it comes to free speech issues, because, you know, what's the socially responsible position where what to what extent do we need to show that there are valid other sides to an issue, especially when we're talking about some issues where the other side is about like 
the destruction of a group of people, you know, the, the issue of like fascist materials in the library, I think is a good example because the idea that we're validating fascist speech as the alternative to like diverse texts, like to trans affirming materials, to materials that address racism and race, et cetera, to me is a totally false dichotomy. I also think a lot about uh, Karl Popper's paradox of tolerance, which is basically the idea that a, to- a, a society that is so tolerant that it tolerates the intolerant will end up only with intolerance. And I think there's, you know, a great example of this is in the 1930s, German fascists would burn the diverse books. They burn down the, the you know, I forget the exact name of it, but the Center for gender and sexuality studies that was revolutionary in Berlin at the time, that really a lot of the material in that collection really mirrors exactly the materials that we're getting challenges on now in the 21st century. So, you know, I don't really have um, a, a good like solution or direction for us to go in, but I, I do spend a lot of time thinking about this as well as the ways that we have not actually exercised viewpoint neutrality in libraries in the past. I mean, up until, you know, in living memory, many of our libraries banned Black people. Even libraries that didn't, were not segregated states, like unofficially did not let Black patrons in. So, you know, to me, these are, I, I try to think about speech issues in this very holistic way. And I know that it comes down to like, what's right for specific communities and, you know, what happens with regard to like a specific book. But it's very complex. <laughs> no, and I, I can see that. Like what, Rich, what would you do about, um, you know, books that were Holocaust deniers or, you know, we're just. If I can just add really quick, there is a specific way that this is coming up. One of our electronic resource collections, it's called Hoopla Digital, has re- we recently uncovered in LFP that they have, um, if you look for a Holocaust, the first results in their materials are all Holocaust denial materials, including a text written by an SS officer and another one that's like Hitler, the misunderstood artist. So just want to say it's a, it's a real well, thing. I mean, some of these are primary source original materials. I mean, I, I sort of get that. But go ahead, Rich. What would you what would you do about something like that? You know, I think these are incredibly difficult decisions. And for me, for me as a professional, the question is, what is my community interested in reading and making sure that I'm providing that to them? I don't think I'm there to validate or to refute ideas. Um, I understand that uh, that's that can be an unpopular approach, but it's it's um, to me anticipated demand and 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 what my community would like to read is the most important thing. And if people want to read Holocaust deniers, you know that that has a valid place in your collection. Well, I mean, I don't, yes, I guess I don't think that I, it's my place to essentially referee. Having said that, I, there are a whole variety of criteria that are applied when selecting materials. Um, demand is just one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, literary merit, you know, how well something is reviewed, et cetera, et cetera. It goes on and on. Um, Quality. And, yep. And and also interlibrary loan is one of the options for people who want to get some of those quote unquote long tail subjects that you may not be able to provide with your local collection. Long tail referring to the bell curve, something that's sort of way well, out. Well, this, no, this idea that people's tastes are kind of infinite and 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 um, kind of niche niche tastes are um, 
little harder to represent in your collection, but are anyway, it can be sort of infinitely things that are the infinite variety of tastes that are out there, essentially. Yep. You, Can I just add one other thought? I'm so sorry. Context matters too, because Hoopla is only purchased by public libraries. So those primary sources and research materials, et cetera, that would be totally appropriate in an academic library, they don't typically have a space in the public library. Allison and Alexandra have both mentioned that libraries use commercial services, both for purchasing electronic materials and collections. And um, like, I wonder how, how those commercial services determine what's in their collection. Do you know, Jamie? Like, are they subject to normal commercial pressures or political pressures or? Absolutely. And I don't, I don't know the the secret to, to how they, you know, um, generate title lists and whatnot, but they're, they're corporate entities and the marketplace is consolidating. So we have fewer and fewer of these entities to work with, or they're they're owned by by parent companies, and um, and a lot of them seek exclusivity. You know, they want to be the only ones that can offer X Y Z popular resource. So um, it it's a it's a tough dynamic because in order to bring content and these services to the people we serve, which is very important, uh, we do so unfortunately beholden to uh, cor- corporate interests at, at play. And um, when we, you know, when we discover um, inequities or lack of diversity in the collection, it's always an uphill battle um, in, in working with these, these institutions, corporations really to. to but you don't always have to buy titles through those services in bundles. You, in many cases, you can buy individual titles and you can sculpt it like you would a, a local library collection. I just, I want to make sure our, our listeners understand that it's not, yes, sometimes things are bought as a bundle, but sometimes you can just buy individual titles. Yeah. yeah. But I want to ask one last question before we start thinking about wrapping up. And that is, you know, there's been a trend in lots and lots of institutions about privatization, taking public institutions and, um, you know, moving them into the private for-profit sector. And I wonder what you each think about that in the context of a library. Um, Alexandra, do you have a thought about that? Like, what about outsourcing your school library to a private entity? Um, I, I, it's, it's an interesting question because on the one hand, I'm in a library where it is just me. There aren't any other ed techs. There aren't any other librarians. Um, it's a relatively small collection, but it's, you know, we have in the library of hard copies, I believe around 8,000, um, or a little more. And, and then the, ebooks and audiobooks I share with the high school. Um, now, the ebooks and audiobooks, which are through Overdrive to become Sora, are books that we hand select. Um, they aren't ones that we actually in the summer, I think they usually send us some titles that are like complimentary titles, but they're ones that we're, we're choosing. Um, a, a service that comes to mind is like uh, Junior Library Guild which has been around for ages and they, you can choose categories and they will send books. And you know what? I absolutely use them not for most of my curating, but for some of it. 
and it is a big help <laughs> um, <laughs> to have because there's only so much I can do in a day. But um, I, Rich, yeah. what do you think about privatizing? I mean, is this a real trend or is this just a? Um, I think that it depends on what you're talking about. If you're talking about pr- privatizing with uh, libraries. By, uh, by for-profit corporations, and that's mm-hmm. obviously a problem. I mean, I think that libraries are one of the last non-commercial public spaces where you can go, regardless of your circumstance, and we want to keep that. However, uh, as I said before, many libraries in Maine are organized as independent non-profit corporations, and that's a very different matter. Not-for-profit is the key thing there. Do you want to comment on that, Jamie? Privatization? So, yeah, I, I would I would agree with Rich. It seemed like this was popping up as kind of a little trend or fad more than a few years ago. And it it hasn't been on my radar. It's not to say that it's still not kind of popping up, but it could be very problematic if if you're looking at for-profit corporations and, um, you know, running, running libraries uh, for sure. Well, uh, we're coming to the close of our show. So we want to give you each a chance to make some parting comments. I, I hope you'll, in addition to whatever else you wanted to say today, um, try to work into what each of us listening to the show can do to support our public and school libraries. So Alexandra, I'll ask you to go first. Sure. Um, I think that you know, in terms of what people can do, voting for your school, participating in elections for school committee members um, is really helpful. And paying attention to people's platforms and and even asking them outright, you know, where do you stand on library books and books in the library and books in the classroom? Um, vote for the people that will stand behind your libraries. That's a huge thing good rich what about you what your general comments on libraries and civic as civic institutions and then public support for libraries if you wouldn't mind i think all of us who work in public libraries are honored to do that i think we're fortunate to do that and uh i'm grateful for that that our by and large our communities support us and trust us most importantly um and uh i just um i guess i just want to close by saying Wherever you're from, please support your public library. It deserves it. And uh, if you can help improve it in some way, please do that uh, because your library is going to become what your community makes of it. That's good advice. Allison, give us your thoughts. Uh, In addition to what my colleague said, I agree with everything already. Um, With regard to things that are happening around the book bannings, um, I think that it really is so important for our community members to show up, not only like go to their library and find out sort of where things stand, you know, have they been getting challenges? Are they afraid of it? Are they, do they feel prepared if it's going to happen, but also getting in the room for those board meetings where these challenges are taking place, either just being present in the room and ready to speak and give testimony um, supportive of the library, but also getting on those boards, the school board or the library board, if possible, which is definitely challenging. But right now, the environment that we're in, not sure so much how much this is happening in Maine, but all over the country, the people who are running for those seats are the people who want to remove trans affirming books, books about race and racism. So 
we really, really need our patron communities to be showing up for us. Well, and lots of these are at um, select boards and city council meetings, too. So just spend a minute about, you know, how municipal governments play into that, too. Allison, just say a few words about me. Oh, yeah, no, sorry. Just, just agree. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. That, um, you know, I think maybe the first step is figuring out how those decisions are getting made, who's involved in them. And I think, you know, starting by stepping into your public library and asking, um, and then working with your, you know, with your neighbors to take a stand about this stuff, whether it's at, you know, in your city council chambers, or whether it's at your school board or whatever. So, Jamie, saving you for last here, um, give us your last thoughts about this whole topic, libraries as civic institutions, defenders of democracy, and how public can best support their libraries. Well, thanks again, Anne, for having us on. You know, Rich said something that that reminded me of um, such an important value that we bring in. It's trust. And, you know, we've done research here in Maine, and um, we certainly see it nationally that that librarians, one of the most trusted professions there is. And library, you know, our libraries fall fall right in line with that. And it's because of the way that we've operated and the way that we position ourselves in, in communities, all the things that we've talked about here that are so important. We're involved in helping people find jobs and navigate unemployment claims and, and the internet. We help with uh, telehealth now um, that's really uh, emerging. We're there for workforce development opportunities. And in Maine in particular, um, we have the Maine School and Library Network, which delivers robust fiber broadband internet to schools and libraries. So we've always played the role of, of connector and convener. And, um, and because of our collections and the um, indiscriminate access to them um, protected by a private library record, we have uh, gained our community's trust like no other institution, uh, frankly, in the world. Um, So I think we're strong institutions. I think we'll continue to be strong institutions. And for anyone listening, if, if you don't support your library, please consider supporting your library. I mean that from you know, with your pocketbook, um, because it's important. Um, and more than anything, just walk into your library and uh, get a library card. It'll, uh, it'll open up a, a world of possibilities. Wonderful. Thank you all for being our guests this afternoon. Um, we are now out of time. Our guests were Rich Boulay, director of the Blue Hill Public Library, Alexandra, Hen- Alexandra Henricks, children's author and middle school librarian at Leonard Middle School in Old Town, Allison Macrina, founder and director of the Library Freedom Project, and Jamie Ritter, Maine State Librarian. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERUFM. We're streaming at WERU.org. If you have a comment about this show, send it to news at WERU.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. The League's website is LWVME.org for more information about this topic, to learn about other shows in this series, or to subscribe to our podcast. That's LWVME.org. We'll see you here next month. Thanks, everybody.